Good morning, church family. My name is Abigail Harms, and today's passages come from Proverbs 1020, 1028, 11.8, and 28.1. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. The righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of my favorite books is by Stephen Ambrose called Undaunted Courage. Uh, if you never read it, it's a great book. It's a, it tells the story of Lewis and Clark and their journey to find the Northwest Passage. And if you're not kind of familiar with that part of American history, what they were doing is going up the Missouri River, hoping to find some sort of waterway across continental United States. And it was an amazing journey. They were really going where no, you know, no one had charted before. And, uh, and it was a very difficult journey. It required an enormous amount of courage. Um, and they were kind of making their way up this River. Now, one of the things that made it particularly difficult for them was as they went along, there are all of these tributaries into the Missouri River. I, I got a little picture here, and this just kind of gives you a, a quick little snapshot of, of what this was like. Of course, in the early part of their journey, it was easy to determine what was the main river channel and which was the tributary. But as they went on, it became very difficult to, to figure out which way they were supposed to go, which tributary they were supposed to follow. And, and as you notice here, I mean, sometimes the tributary may end up in Canada or it may end up in Kansas. And so the, these decisions that they were making, in fact, there's these great debates between Lewis and Clark as to which they should go and why they thought which one was the pattern that they should follow. These decisions they were making, the, the, the breadth or the width between where they might end up was really, really wide. Now, I think this is, I've, I've often thought about this because I actually think it's a really good illustration for kind of what our life is like. It's, it's like you're going up a stream, you're going against the current of the river, you're going up river, and there's always these choices that you have to make. And it's hard to know which choice to take, which river, if you will, to go down. And, and, and the width, the difference between where you may end up if you make this choice and where you may end up if you make this choice is oftentimes incredibly wide. And so decision-making can be paralyzing in the world that we live in today. First of all, we live in a world with an enormous amount of options. I mean, I've said that life is like a cheesecake factory menu these days where just like every, you know, you go to Cheesecake Factory, it's like every food ever made you can order. Or in life, it's just like everything is possible. Which school should I go to? Who should I marry? Which job should I take? There's, there's so many options available to people all the time. And again, I think decisions that we make can be incredibly paralyzing because if you make this decision, you may end up in Kansas. And if you make this decision, you may end up in Canada and you don't really know. Paige and I did some uh, pre-marriage counseling the other night and I love doing that with Paige. And we always kind of hear the couple's love story and it's fun for us to remember our love story and uh, just to talk about how we fell in love. And, but Paige was a little late to this marriage counseling the other night. And the reason that she was late is because one of our children had gotten an object 
stuck in their ear. And she was at the doctor trying to get this object removed from our child's ear. Now, I told the couple, I said, look, when I first called Paige, I did not have in my head one day, I'm going to be trying to get an object out of a child's ear with this woman, you know. I just thought she's cute. She's fun. I want to go out with her. But that river led to all of these places and all of these decisions and all of this, this, this whole life that I've, this whole life of a journey that I've been on with her. So what I want to do over the next three weeks, we're, we're starting a sermon series today called Decision Grid. And it, it's really a sermon series about making decisions from a perspective of people who know God and, and then making the kind of decisions that please God. The invitation of the gospel, I just want to remind you of this, is not just that you can have a little tidbit of wisdom here and there, but the inv invitation of the gospel is that you can know the sovereign God of the universe. Not only the God who knows everything and has the ultimate perspective, but the God who is in control of everything. And again, it's not just an invitation to know stuff about him or learn from him. It's actually an invitation to know him. That is the wonder of what we have been called to in Jesus, that you through Christ can know God. And as we know God, and as we live out this life in God, my hope and prayer is that we'll be the kind of church that makes decisions that please him, that bring him glory. And so I, I wanna be very careful in a series like this. It's a series that's not as maybe expositional as we typically do. We're gonna be looking at kind of big swaths of scripture and, and how the Bible instructs us rather than particular passages as we normally do. But I think as we, as we look at the Bible in this way, I wanna be very, very careful because I think what's been done in a lot of churches is to present God as kind of a self-help genie, uh, kind of another salesman that has a good self-help book. And if you buy his book, the Bible, it can really help you along the way. I, I've heard, you know, preachers say, look, God can help you make really good decisions. Now, again, that is true. But if you're not careful, that idea kind of reinforces a false understanding of the world that most of us have. It assumes that your life is all about you and that God's just this character that comes along with some good advice that can help you along the way, that can help you make some good choices. Give God a try. He can really help you out. And this is grounded in a false understanding of the world that all of us have at one point or another had. Some of y'all have heard me say this before, but the first fun foundational thought that all of us had was wrong. The first foundational thought that we have had is I exist. Now you do exist, that is right. But because we are first and maybe primarily aware of our own existence, we begin to see our lives as a story primarily about us. And we're the central character. And we're the one that 
is ultimately the story is concerned with. And everyone else in the story, even God, are just supporting actors that kind of help us out along the way. This assumption that we all make is ultimately wrong. You've heard me say this. I believe that in the beginning of time, before sin entered the world, the man and the woman, humanity, was more aware of God than they were of themselves. Adam and Eve, I believe, were more God conscious than they were self-conscious. And this is actually how we are supposed to be. This is actually how we are designed to be. Because I'm gonna break it to you. You are not fundamentally the most important person in the universe. You are not fundamentally glorious. The story of creation and the universe is not fundamentally about you. It is about the Lord. And I believe Adam and Eve in the beginning of time knew this. They understood this. They were more aware of God than they were of themselves. There's a couple of clues in the text. First, Adam never went to God asking for a helper, right? God had just said, work the garden, keep it. And Adam just did that. It's not like he raised a complaint and said, man, this is hard. I need some help here. No, God saw that. God initiated that. And Adam was just, as Adam was just obeying what the Lord had given him to do. The most telling clue, though, is that before sin, Adam and Eve had no idea that they were naked. Now, again, you have to be pretty unself-aware to be naked and not realize that you're naked. But they didn't realize they were naked. They weren't aware of themselves. They were aware of God. They knew that he was the center. They knew that joy was found in him, that delight was found in him, that it was really his story that was the most important. And what was the serpent's temptation to them? What, was the, what did the serpent say? If you eat of this tree, you'll be like God. You'll be the center. The story will be about you now. And from that time to this, we have all followed in the way of our father, Adam, and have wrongly believed foundationally that life is all about us. And, in, and if you have that mindset, then all God is to you is another self-help book salesman that can come along and help you out along the way. And, and the reason I begin here is because if that is your perception of God, if that is what you've been taught about God, maybe he can come along and help you out, then you don't actually know God. The God that you serve in that situation or the God that you're worshiping or trying to hear from is not the God of the Bible who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the one who has all authority and all glory and all light and all beauty. No, the God that you serve in that kind of self-health paradigm is an idol that you have crafted. And maybe you went through the Bible buffet and picked out some things that seemed wise or seemed helpful but it's simply an idol that you have made to make yourself feel better. But if you're going to be truly wise and truly righteous and make the kinds of decisions that ultimately please the Lord from a place of actually knowing God, you have to know God. And when we start to see God, our response is not, maybe this guy can help me along the way. Our response is, like Isaiah, 
in Isaiah 6 when he sees and catches a glimpse of God and says to himself, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, but I have seen the Lord. I have seen the living God. Our response is awe and fear and worship. This is why the Bible says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of righteousness is the fear of the Lord. The beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. And this, this understanding of fear is that you rightly understand who God is and who we are. Now, when you understand that, you're left with the thought, <laughs> Who am I? What was me? What am I to do? How can I know this God? And again, the answer is, the only answer is that God has loved us. That God in his mercy sent Jesus a savior to redeem us from ourselves, to turn our hearts away from ourselves and to rightly turn our hearts back toward him through the gospel, through the gospel of Jesus. Now with that kind of laid in place, what I want to do for the rest of our time is talk to you as people who I pray we are the kind of people that have a right perspective on God about, uh, and, and I want to give you a tool that I believe can help you from that place, begin to make decisions that ultimately please the Lord and that, that I pray bring glory to God. You see, this is what your life is about. This is why you're here. As people who've been redeemed, as Christians who've been redeemed, how you live life now, what the Christian life is, is living your life as if God is the center. Living your life as if he is the purpose. We passed out these catechisms last week and if you're a parent here and you're looking for a tool to try to help teach your kids what the Bible has to say, Christian doctrine, I can't encourage you enough to pick up these catechisms. There's an amazing tool. But of course, one of the questions is, what is the great purpose of man? We, we're getting this from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We've changed the words a little bit, but what is, the, what is man's great purpose? What is the great purpose of man? What do we exist for? Here's what we exist for. The great purpose of man is to glorify God, for him to be the anchor, for him to be the center. And as we do to enjoy him, to see in him light and righteousness and beauty, the great purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So how do we do this? How do we live out this Christian life? How do we, as we are facing all of these decisions that we face every day that sometimes don't seem so clear, how do we live these things out in a way that pleases the Lord? And, and so what I want to do the rest of our time is I want to do two things. I want to walk through this tool that we have given you called a decision grid. And I really, I'm hopeful. The reason we're doing this series is more for the conversations that are, hap that are gonna happen after this series. Really what we're hoping to do here is to give you a tool. And as you sit down with each other and talk, I'm trying to decide between this and this. I'm trying to figure out if, if I need to be doing this and this, that you guys can sit down together and say, okay, let's, let's kind of map this out on a decision grid. And let's figure out if this is the kind of decision that is ultimately pleasing to the Lord, the kind of decision that someone who has Christ at the center of their life would make. And then the, the second thing I wanna do is talk about the first axis of the decision grid, which is the righteousness versus wickedness or righteousness versus unrighteousness axis. So if you know me, you know I love a two by two grid. Um, I think that 
A good two by two grid uh, really helps understand life. It helps us understand paradox. It helps us, it, it prevents us from making false choices or preventing false choices in life. And I just wanna say the Christian life Christianity is full of paradox. It is, it is full of the complexity of life. So for example, here's just a classic Christian example. God is one, God is three. How do we understand that? Well, they're both true. Both of those things are true. It's a paradox. They, they live in tension with one another. If you're a Christian, you're, you're, you're kept by the Lord, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, yet you're also called to persevere in your faith. How are both of those true? How do you have security and this call to perseverance? Well, it's a paradox. They, they, those things live in tension with one another. They're kind of a, a famous one that Christians oftentimes talk about is this whole kind of debate between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And, and here's what I'll say. A lot of heresy has come about because people have not been able to understand those two ideas that are both biblical together. Let me just use a two by two grid to illustrate how helpful it can be. So for example, God is either sovereign or... He is limited, okay? He's not sovereign. He's, his scope of power is limited. He's not really in control. Or man is either fatal, he can't do anything, his decisions matter nothing, our choices don't matter, or he's responsible. He actually has to make decisions that matter. Well, what do we see in scripture? And again, this is People have been talking about this for 2,000 years. I'm just using an example. I probably should have chosen a different example, but I just want to show you how helpful a two-by-two two grid can be. What do we see in Scripture? Well, we see both of these things to be true. We don't, we don't have to choose between them. We see, for example, in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, you, you, human responsibility, you work out your own salvation. You work out your salvation for divine sovereignty. It is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so we can have a high view, high understanding of, of the, the, the reality of human action in light of the reality of God's eternal and sovereign reign. That's just to illustrate the help of a two by two grid. But the, 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 two, the particular two by two grid I wanna give you here is this decision grid in the Bible and the, the text that Abigail read earlier, and I said, this is not an exposition in, in a kind of the traditional way, but we're gonna look at these themes. In the Bible, as you, as you look through the scriptures, it presents almost as if they're characters, kind of these two axes. And the first axis, if you will, is the righteousness or wickedness, righteousness or unrighteousness axis. Um, the verses that we looked at earlier. The righteous are like this, but the wicked are like this. The righteous behave in this way, but the wicked are like this way. This is the way that the Lord receives the righteous. And you see this in the Psalms, the Proverbs, you see this all throughout the scripture. This kind of, this dualism, if you will, this, this paradigm between how are the righteous and how are the wicked. The other axis you see and again, in the same kind of way, almost as if they're characters, the fool and the wise man, wisdom and foolishness. And again, we're gonna look at this more pointedly next week, but the foolish and the wise. 
So there is a way to be both unrighteous, to be both wicked and foolish. And I want to call this person, you know, the wicked fool. Now, the wicked fool is someone who has no regard for the Lord, no regard for the law of God, no delight in pleasing the Lord. And at the same time, they're very foolish. There's no wisdom. They're making decisions that are incredibly potentially harmful to themselves. I, I was talking with a friend this week about a buddy of ours who grew up and had some Christian influence, but is now living the buckhead dream, right? And this person, they're going out there, they're getting into a ton of debt. They're, you know, hooking up with people all the time. They're partying all the time. They're not focused on, they're, not only are what they're doing is unrighteous or wicked or not pleasing to the Lord, it's actually really foolish. I mean, I was just hearing some stories about the guy. I was like, man, this guy is going to kill himself, right? There is a way to be both unrighteous and really, really foolish. This is the wicked fool. Now, before we, as good Christian people here on Sunday morning, start saying, I'm glad I'm here. I'm glad I'm not like those people, the wicked fools and tax collectors, right? I just want you to hear this. Here's my warning. All of life, like the Missouri River, <laughs> is pushing you this way. The world that we live in is pushing you this way. We should never be the kind of people that says, I'm not one of those. No, you, you, you're a decision away from being one of those. You're, you're a moment away from being one of those. This is, how, this is how the whole current of the world that you live in every day, this is where it is pushing you toward a disregard for the things of the Lord and toward foolishness. But that's the first quadrant. But there's also a way to be wicked, to have no regard for the things of the Lord, but to actually be wise, to actually have some shrewdness about you. I'll call this, um, I'll call this person, this is, I'm quoting from Bunyan here, but the worldly wise man, the worldly wise man, this person may even appear to be incredibly righteous, but there's no delight in the Lord in their heart. And when I was a kid, uh, I went to a big church. My dad was on staff at this church and it was a well-respected church and uh, they're in Huntsville, Alabama. And there was this guy in the church and everybody liked this guy. And he was, had a good reputation and he was a stockbroker and everybody liked him. And uh, he actually was on the finance committee of church. He became the treasurer of the church and everybody started investing their money with him. My dad, you know, we didn't have any money at the time, but my dad scratched some money together and invested with this guy and the pastor of the church invested with this guy. And everybody loved this guy and respected it. And this guy, it was amazing. The returns, I mean, you would get your quarterly report and this guy was unbelievable. Everybody was making money with this guy. They respected this guy and everything was going great until one day the FBI showed up and this guy was running this massive Ponzi scheme. He, he was wise. He put himself around, around the right people. He had this incredible appearance of, of wisdom. But his heart was toward these evil things, toward himself. With no regard for these people that he was hurting along the way. Now, that's a dramatic example. But I want to say this. Less dramatically, what I was talking about earlier... I think if you're the kind of person that comes to the Lord 
that comes to Christianity saying, what wisdom can I get out of this? How, how can this help me to be more wise, to maybe have a better reputation? And I think there's a lot of people. That's, that's this quadrant. There, there's no regard, there's no delight in the Lord. There's no genuine love for the Lord. It's just, you know, maybe this will help me to do a little better, to be a little more successful, to be better at this or that. You gotta be careful. Is this where your heart is? Are you serving the Lord in some sort of utilitarian kind of way? There's a lot of examples of this in the New Testament. I think of like the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler, smart guy, successful guy, he saw Jesus and you know what? There was something to be gained from Jesus. I mean, Jesus doing these miracles, his teaching was interesting. And so what did the rich young ruler do? He did what any smart guy would do. He went to Jesus and said, hey, help me out here. Well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, you can help me out. And he was interested in Jesus and he wanted to follow Jesus until Jesus said, you know what you really need to do? You need to give me your whole life. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. You need to show that you love me and that you trust me more than you trust your money. And when Jesus said that, the rich young ruler was gone. You know, even Judas, the disciple that betrayed Jesus. You know, Judas, I believe, believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he had a good plan. I'm gonna get in good with the Messiah. <laughs> I mean, it's just Jesus is the Messiah. If he's gonna restore Israel and I'm one of his guys, that's a really good place to be when Jesus restores Israel. A lot of the disciples thought this way. But of course, Jesus' kingdom was different than Judas thought. Jesus' kingdom was a kingdom not of this world. Judas thought Jesus is going to get the sword. He's going to kill the Romans. We're going to rule the world. But that's not the kingdom that Jesus was introducing. And when Judas figured that out, what did he do? He didn't have anything to do with Jesus anymore. In fact, he looked for power somewhere else. It's interesting right now, and if this is a new term for you, I don't really have time to get into it, but there's a lot of like talk of Christian deconstruction that is going on. And again, I, this is something I need to teach on in, in coming days, but I think a lot of that, people that are going through that are coming out of this quadrant. <laughs> The faith that they're deconstructing or rejecting is not a faith anchored in a genuine love and delight of Jesus, their Savior, but it's a system of Christianity that they perceive to give them some sort of power or some sort of standing in the world. And now that they're seeing, well, maybe this system doesn't give me that as well, they're, they're actually following in the way of Judas. Maybe someone else will be interested in my story. Maybe someone else will even pay me for my story if I can tell them the way that Jesus' followers really are. Be careful of this. There is a way to be wise, to take hold of wisdom that is wisdom, but to be unrighteous, to be wicked. But there's also another quadrant and this is the person that desires righteousness, but they either lack the wisdom or the patience, or they lack the humility 
to follow in godly wisdom. And this is the righteous fool. When I was, and I just want to say, before we go any further again, <laughs> I, have, I have been in all of these quadrants, right? So when I tell stories about people, it's not a them, it's a me, right? The river, the river of the world pushes us this way. But when I was at seminary, we'd go to seminary and, you know, you learn all this doctrine. You learn all this, you get so smart, right? And, and I just want to say, I, I so commend that. If, if God has kind of put a desire for ministry in your life, this class that John mentioned earlier, that Will Kynes, who I believe is one of the brightest Old Testament scholars in our generation is going to be teaching and the, the price is unbelievable. I really just encourage you to do this. It's just a way that we as a church want to serve our members. So sign up for that class. But when we went to seminary, we'd learn all these things. We got all this knowledge. And a lot of times, guys, their response to that was rather than being humble and wise and caring and compassionate with all of this knowledge, their response was to go back to all of their old youth ministers and pastors and tell them how they were wrong and they were all of a sudden right and, and smart. There's a way to do this in Christianity. Christians are so susceptible to this, to, to believe in the right things. To have a concern, to have real conviction, which is good. It's righteous conviction, but to be a fool. And, and again, it's not that there's always a pure heart. Sometimes the, the foolishness is rooted in other kinds of sins. Sins like a lack of gentleness. Sins like pride. Sins like impatience. I want to warn you against this. There is a way to be committed to righteousness, but to be foolish. And this is incredibly damaging. This can actually cost the Lord. We actually see this in the scriptures too. There's examples of this in the gospels. You know, Jesus around him had the zealots that were like, let's take up the sword. They, they, they believed in the right thing, right? The Romans and the Jewish leaders of the time were bringing such sin, such, such uh, you know, uh, perversion into the temple. I remember when Peter, even, the night that Jesus was arrested, brought out his sword and cut off the ear of the guard. I love what Jesus says to him. So, so much of this quadrant, I think, shows a lack of faith in the Lord. Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. <laughs> if you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And then he says this. He said, do you not know that I could have 10,000 angels here like this? Do you not know that I could just call to my father like this and all the angels and the armies of heaven would come and protect me? Don't you know that something bigger is going on here? This, this can show a lack of certain faith. And so we want to be the kind of people that have wisdom. Of course, let me just do a couple of passages and we're going to look at this more next week. But a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man knows when to speak. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I love James in 119, which is kind of like the Proverbs of the New Testament. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. There is a way to be a righteous fool. Now, you know where I've been a righteous fool and I'm so grateful for is in my marriage. This is one of the reasons that marriage and being a member of a church and being a member of community is so good for your soul. There have been times in my marriage where Paige and I've had a disagreement. There've been a lot of times where Paige and I've had a disagreement and I've been wrong. But there've been some times where we've had a disagreement and I've been right. I was right. 
But the way that I went about being right was foolish. It wasn't wise. It was inconsiderate. It lacked compassion. It lacked gentleness. And what the Lord so desires from us, what, what I desire for myself and what we need one another for, again, I, I, I can be in all of these quadrants. What the Lord so desires to be so committed to him, to love him, to be committed to his righteousness, but also committed to his kind of wisdom. There's also a way to do this with a pure heart. You know, Barrett Fisher and I have been friends for a long time, Barrett who just came on staff. And when we were in college, we were on this mission trip and we were in Guatemala and we were at this place that was incredibly poor and they had no sort of medical, uh, they had no hospital, there was no sort of medical attention. And we were there and at this time in Barrett's life, God had begun to place a call on his life toward the nations. Of course, Barrett and Joe Beth, if you're not aware, served overseas in Southeast Asia for 14 years and God used them in tremendous ways. So this was all happening. We were in college together. God was doing this in Barrett's life and we're there in Guatemala and one night Barrett is so broken for the need there. He says, I'm not supposed to go home with you guys. I'm supposed to stay here and help build this hospital. Now, there was, his heart was pure. There was certainly no sin in his life, but, but I'm so grateful. There was the missionary actually and other men around him said, Barrett, you know what? Your heart is amazing, but I think actually what the, the, the best course of action for you to do is to actually go home, finish college, go to seminary, and then let the Lord use you. And, and the result of that is Barrett again, eventually became this amazing missionary that engaged with an unengaged people group. Millions of lives, I believe, will one day be affected because of the work that he and Joe Beth and their family did. There was purity of heart there, but he just needed godly counsel, wise people around him to help him to grow in wisdom. And so my, my real hope is really that that would be what happens here, that we would help one another along the way. You know, we're all gonna approach decisions from different places. We're all gonna have different tendencies. You, you may kind of have a starting place where you're here, <laughs> where actually there's something that you're wanting to do that's maybe wise, but there is, there is some sin in your heart. And that's where the church can come along and say, hold on, how can, how can we help you move up here? How can, how can we help you become someone who is both godly and wise, who has a desire to follow the, the righteousness of the Lord and the wisdom that is from the Lord. There may be somebody that's over here and you are so passionate about this and you're right, you are right. But in being right, there's a lack of gentleness and compassion and concern. And so you need your community of faith to help you move this way. You may be down here. Again, the river is always going this way. But as we begin to see the Lord rightly, and as we begin to love his word, and as we begin to light in his voice, the, and as we, as we do this together, the hope is that we would be the kind of men and women, the kind of church that lives in this way, that lives out the gospel. So what I wanna to do to, to close, and I know we're kind of running out of time, but I just wanna look at one axis with you. And, and I probably didn't plan this sermon series well, because I wanted to spend a whole kind of week on this. But I just want to look at this first axis, the righteous and wickedness axis. And, and, to, and to do this, I just want to look at one verse. This is one of the verses that Abigail read earlier, Proverbs eleven eight. It says, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. The righteous is delivered from trouble, but the wicked walks into it 
instead. Now, there's a couple of questions that should come to your mind when you read this verse. And the first question I really think is, what is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness is not only doing the right thing, it's wanting to do the right thing. To be righteous, true righteousness is having the heart of God. And, and Christianity is kind of unique in this. If you look at any sort of law system or, or even sort of religious system, it's very concerned with behavior, but Christianity is concerned with behavior, but it's more concerned with the heart. It's more concerned with what's going on behind the behavior. Jonathan Edwards wrote this very famous treatise on true virtue. And he talked about the difference between common virtue and true virtue. So for example, the example, and I've used this before, but that Edwards gave was on lying. Why do people lie? Well, people lie because of fear, right? We don't want the truth to be found out. If they found that out, that would be bad. So I'm gonna lie, I'm gonna make up a story. Or people lie because of pride. We don't like the truth, right? The truth doesn't look at us very well. One of my kids asked me uh, not too long ago, what do you weigh, dad? And I, you know, I haven't weighed in a while. So maybe I'm, maybe I've lost some weight. I don't know, but I told them a number that probably wasn't true. And I was motivated by pride. I wanted to weigh a better weight than I actually weigh. Fear and pride. That motivates us to lie. And so then Edward said, well, what is it that motivates us to tell the truth? And he said, well, actually, if you think about it, for most people, it's fear, right? They don't want to get caught in a lie. You know, Mark Twain famously said, if you never lie, you never have to remember anything, right? You never, you never have to remember the story that you made up. I'm afraid if I lie here, it could be really bad. Or pride. I'm not a liar. I'm not one of those kind of people. I'm an honest person. So Edward's kind of deducing this. If, if the same reason fear and pride that people are lying is the same motivation that people are telling the truth, then what is that? And he called it common virtue. It's better to live in a world, even if people are wrongly motivated, of truth tellers than liars, but it's not true virtue. <laughs> it's not real virtue. It's not actually a virtuous person. You actually become a virtuous person when you tell the truth because you love the truth like God loves the truth. To be righteous, to be righteous is to have the heart of God. And as the text says, the righteous will be delivered from trouble. But the wicked walks into it. So then the, the second question is, well, what, what does it mean to be wicked? And of course, to be wicked is to not have a heart like the heart of God. To follow the way of your father, Adam. To be centered on your story. To want to go your own way. To ignore what the Lord has said. To not love his word. To not delight in his salvation. And of course, the text says that the wicked walks into trouble. You know, Lou Perillo and I were talking this week about the Proverbs. And, and there's, there's kind of two ways to understand the Proverbs. There's like an immediate fulfillment. Generally, the Proverbs are true, right? There's like an immediate general truism about them. The righteous will be delivered from trouble, right? If you're righteous, if you do the right thing, you probably won't get into trouble. But that's not always true. You might be righteous and get into trouble. The wicked will walk into trouble. If you keep doing the bad thing, watch out. You're going to get in trouble. There's a general truism, but sometimes that's not true. Sometimes people can be wicked their whole life and things go pretty well for them. 
There's an immediate truism, but there's an ultimate fulfillment. I want you to hear this. Ultimately, the righteous will be delivered from trouble. The righteous will be delivered from the ultimate trouble. The righteous will be delivered from from the trouble of God on the last day. But the wicked, the people that show no regard for it are actually walking into the judgment of God. And so this leads us to another question then, how do I get righteous? And the problem that you and I have, let's just be honest, we know we're not righteous. We've done righteous things. We've modified our behavior, but our heart isn't always pure. We don't always tell the truth because we love truth because God loves truth. We certainly aren't the person that has always had God at the center of our lives. No, ultimately, when the truth is known about us, we are not righteous. But I want to close with this. And we've said this before, but I just, I have to say it again. The amazing message of the gospel is this that God demonstrates his power and his goodness and his beauty and his love for you in this, despite our unrighteousness, despite our wickedness, despite our foolishness, God was willing to send his son Jesus, who was righteous, who was always wise. Jesus is the only one that's ever always camped out in this quadrant. And Jesus came to exchange places with you Jesus came to die before God on behalf of all of our wickedness and all of our foolishness and to give us in exchange his perfect record of righteousness. And let me just tell you this. When you start to believe that, when you believe that you have been made right before the living God of this universe and you can approach him with confidence and know him and the power of the spirit of God becomes to indwell your life, when you believe this gospel, let me just tell you, you know what happens to you? God begins to do his sanctifying work in your heart and you actually become righteous. Your desires change. Your your wants change. You actually long for the things of God. You long to please the Lord. You long to love God. You see God as the center and not yourself. But we need to be tuned toward this. So as we close today, I just want to allow the the work of the Holy Spirit to do some tuning in us. The river is always pushing this way. But when we do what we're doing here, we gather under God's word, when we practice the sacraments together, when we worship together, the Spirit of God has this way of tuning our hearts back toward him. And so here in a few moments, if you are a believer, I'm going to invite you to join together with your family to take the Lord's Supper, to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus, of the hope that Christ has given us, that we can know God and through faith in him be like God. If you're not a believer here today, I I just, uh, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, I want to, again, just extend the word of welcome. But I just want you to know, as these elements come by here in a few moments, this is something for Christians. This is something for people who are calling on the name of Jesus, who are centering their lives on Jesus. So as they come by, if, if that's not true of you, just, just let the elements pass. Nobody's going to look at you weird or funny. But the Bible actually warns against this, not taking this in an unworthy or in an unfaithful way. 
So let's meditate on these things as Jordan leads us and as the elements are passed and then we'll take them together here corporately in a few moments. Let me pray for us. Father, do your work by the power of your word and by the power of your church to tune our hearts away from ourselves and to tune them toward you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.